This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we'll start into chapter 8. After finishing his record of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, Matthew now turns his attention to the power that Jesus displayed. Many Old Testament prophecies foretold the kind of power the true Messiah would demonstrate on his arrival. Today, we'll see Jesus' power over disease, just as the prophet Isaiah predicted. There's much more to this story of healing than meets the eye. Jesus brings healing in a way that demonstrates his matchless character and divinity. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. After the prologue and the first discourse of Jesus, chapters 1 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8 marks the beginning of the first narrative. And some people like to label the Sermon on the Mount the manifesto of the king. Then the next couple of chapters we can label the methodology of the king. Now we're going to spend the next several weeks, at least seven weeks, learning about the authority of Christ over disease, over demons and death. Then we will look at his power to forgive, to transform and to restore. And in that process, I hope that your love for him will grow and your walk with him will be more God-honoring. Now Matthew concludes chapter 7 by noting that the crowds were amazed at the teaching of Christ as he finished the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says, verses 28 through 29, because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That's why the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Now the author demonstrates this authority here of Christ by selecting miracles that prove the divinity of the majestic Savior to confirm to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Kings. But Matthew does more than that. He concludes the prologue of his gospel here by observing this in Matthew 4, verse 24. The news about him, meaning Christ, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Now he provides the details of some of these miraculous healings and helps the readers understand why some people sought Jesus to heal them. And in Matthew 8, therefore, verses 1 through 17, he focuses on three miracles to demonstrate that our majestic Savior is sovereign over sickness, sensitive to the sick, and sympathetic towards the sinner. So let's look at those three scenes here. The first one highlights Jesus' compassion for the unclean, verses 1 through 4. And he says this, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, for us to understand the significance of this miracle, we must understand the perspective of a leper in that culture. Someone with this particular condition, possibly what we know as Hansen's disease, would have been considered ceremonially unclean, alienated from human interaction because of the risk of infection. 
the reason for that, church, is because leprosy provided a graphic illustration of the deadly effects of sin, which shames people, defiles, separates, disfigures reputations, infects others, and ultimately kills. Now, using the term for bowing down in worship, Matthew describes this man's approach to Christ, which reveals that the leper recognized Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. He did not care about social expectations or anybody's opinion of him. All he wanted to do is get to the Savior. And when he did, he did not demand to be healed. He did not declare a cure and certainly did not cast the quote-unquote demon of leprosy. He simply understood that he was in the presence of the one that Isaiah 61 verse 1 describes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Why else would he address Jesus as Lord? Certainly this guy here concluded that the Jewish Messiah had the authority to free him from his uncleanliness, to mend his broken heart, which Jesus did in a very significant way, church. He touched him. Verse 3. Now, touching a leper would have rendered anyone ceremonially unclean too, but not Jesus Christ, not the one who has authority over disease. No one else would even come close to this social outcast, but Jesus acted in compassion. So Jesus healed this man miraculously, instantaneously, and completely, demonstrating not only that he is sovereign over sickness, but he's sensitive to the sick, and he is sympathetic towards the sinner. Now, he loves sinners so much that he breaks every social protocol, and he touches the guy he wasn't supposed to touch. This was the touch of compassion. And literally, what he did here, he created this man's extremities, his fingertips, toes, and etc., out of nothing. Only God can do this. And Matthew then concludes the scene like this by informing his readers that Christ performed a miracle here that is godlike. And after healing him, Jesus instructed the man to obey scripture of the time and not broadcast a miracle. That's an interesting conclusion to this particular scene. But there's a simple reason for that. And the answer to that is in the text. Let me read to you chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 5 through 6, to give you an idea of the rationale for Jesus instructing him to not tell anybody, not broadcast the miracle, but go to the priests and obey the law of Moses. He says this while he was sending out his disciples, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So here's the answer. Why did Jesus tell this guy to not broadcast the miracle but to go to the priest first? Because the strategy of Christ was to go to the Jew first. To offer the kingdom of heaven to the Jews first. Let me demonstrate that to you from the Gospel of John. He writes this, John does, in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But the good news for the rest of us is this, church, verses 12 to 13, that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here is the strategy of Christ, to present the gospel, the, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. His strategy was to offer that to the Jew first, and that's why he's telling this guy, go and obey the law of Moses. So how do we apply all of this? Let me offer you three thoughts in terms of application. First, the ceremonially unclean man represents the former condition of the redeemed. Sinners previously alienated from God because of our deteriorating spiritual condition. 
Now, with the exception of Christ, every person born comes into the world ceremonially defiled before a holy God, spiritually dead and in need of a touch from a Savior, the saving touch. And yet, Jesus delivers us from the control and condemnation of sin, of the deadly ailment that we call sin. Here's the second thought. The leper's prayer demonstrates humility and trust in Jesus' power to restore. This man acknowledged the authority of Christ, but appealed to divine compassion. He says, I know you're able to do this, Lord, but are you willing? And that's the question. He didn't question Jesus' ability to heal him. He just says, if it is within your sovereign will to heal me, would you do it, please? We should never assume that God always wants to heal the sick. Rather, we should pray like this guy and say, Lord, I know you are able. That's not the question. I have no concern about that. You are able to do everything according to your will and according to your nature. The question is, is it within your sovereign will to heal me or to change my particular situation, my predicament? Or if you want a better option, how about you quote from the lips of Jesus Christ according to Luke 22 verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Here's a third thought. Jesus' instruction to the newly restored man represents the type of obedience that he expects from the people he saves. And let me articulate this thought like this, okay? Allow your transformed life to be a testimony, but don't stop there. Why do I say this? Because to this man, Jesus says, don't broadcast the miracle just yet. Go and follow the law. But to us, he says, go to the entire world. Listen to how Jesus finishes the gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, to him, Jesus says, don't say anything just now, but to the rest of us, the followers of Jesus Christ, represented by the disciples there in the Great Commission here, because they were the leaders of the early Christian movement. To us, he says, tell the entire world that Jesus Christ saves and show them your transformed life to back up the message. And that's how we should apply and understand this entire scene here. The first of these three scenes, what I'm calling the triad of the miracles here. But look at the second one. Verses 5 through 13. In the first scene, Jesus demonstrates compassion for the unclean. In the second scene, what we have is Jesus' compassion for the undeserving. Let's read that portion. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes. And to another, come and he comes. And to my slave, do this and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It is very possible, church, that this miracle happened on the same day as the previous one. But to better understand what's going on here, we must think like Matthew's original readers. Okay, And according to their perspective here, a Roman centurion 
who was a commander of a hundred soldiers, represented the occupying force, the enemy to be overthrown by a political messiah. You see, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were expecting, a political messiah who would overthrow Rome. And furthermore, to complicate matters, this guy may have been a Samaritan. And the reason for this, church, is Rome would never recruit a Jew to be in charge of the occupying force. And the reason for that is very simple, to minimize the risk of treason and revolt. So imagine their shock when Jesus highlights the faith of this Gentile. Now imagine the outrage when Jesus told them that Gentiles would be a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he means by people from east and, and west. They would partake in the promises to the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while many Jews would be excluded from the kingdom. Now for an even better grasp of this miracle, we must also look at the parallel account of this recorded in Luke 7 verses 1 through 10. We're not going to read the entire portion. Just write this down. And note that the author of that gospel points out a very important detail in this whole interaction here. The centurion never even talked personally with Jesus. He sent elders of the Jews to speak to him. Not because he thought he was too important to talk to Jesus, but the other way around. He didn't consider himself worthy to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's the humility of this man. And not only that, but Luke says that this Roman commander here, uh, he may have represented the enemy of God's people, but he loved them. Why? Because he built them a synagogue. That's what Luke says. But here's another feature of this man's nobility of character. He cared deeply about his servant. He saw him as a person, not a tool. Now, this man understands a profound truth here, and that's the, the whole point of this particular scene. And the truth is this. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And that's why he said, well, you don't need to even come to me. Just say the word. So politically and temporarily, this centurion here outranked Christ, a member of the conquered people. But he knew, this guy knew he was petitioning someone even greater than Caesar, greater than the emperor. He was in the presence of the king of kings by proxy. He wasn't talking with Jesus, but he was in the presence of the king of kings, the majestic savior who has the authority to command the paralysis to leave. He granted the centurion's request because he is not only sovereign over sickness, but has sensitivity for the sick and sympathy for the sinner. And that's the point. So how do we apply all of this? Again, let me offer you three thoughts. First of all, this centurion here represents all of us, previously alienated from the promises of God, informally excluded from his kingdom. How do we know that? Because Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of our sin, we do not deserve salvation. We are not worthy to be in the presence of Christ because of our sinful nature. And He is holy. We are not worthy to be in the presence of a holy God. And yet, He admits us into His presence in the merit of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything we can do, but only by His grace. Second thought. This Roman centurion represents the type of faith that pleases Christ. How do we know that? Because he highlights that in the scene. He says, I have found no greater faith in all of the land of Israel. And what he means by that is saving faith, church. The faith that saves someone. Look at this guy. He approached Jesus Christ stripped of any pride. His military rank did not matter. He simply implored the majestic Savior to issue the command. Remember, the text says, Matthew tells us that he came to Jesus Christ imploring him, again, through other people, imploring Jesus Christ to issue the command. 
And because he demonstrated saving faith, this man will be in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus Christ is promising here by saying people from the east and from the west will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Meaning, this man representing the Gentiles, representing non-Jews, will be in the kingdom of heaven. Along with anyone else who exercises that kind of faith, which we call saving faith. So the truth in this, from the mouth of Christ, is this. When you exercise saving faith, you enter the kingdom of heaven. And how do you exercise saving faith? You strip yourself of any pride, and you come to the Savior. And you say, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. People from the east and the west, the Gentiles, will join this man at the heavenly feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the third thought. The sons of the kingdom are the Jews of the time who demonstrated non-saving faith, the opposite faith of this Gentile. And they were led by the scribes and Pharisees. They placed their trust in their works. You remember that we read all about this in the Sermon on the Mount. They had righteousness that was insufficient to get them to heaven because they placed their, their faith in works and then their religiosity, their hypocrisy. And they represent, in this case here, everyone who is on the wide road that leads to destruction. Remember, we talked about this at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, many are on that road. And the sons of the kingdom here that Jesus is talking about, the Jews of the time who refuse to recognize him as the Messiah, are on that wide road and they are on their way to destruction And tragically, many people are today on that road and they will end up in destruction in utter darkness unless they make a U-turn and enter through the narrow gate. So that's the second scene of this triad of scenes here that Matthew gives us in verses 1 through 17. They're all joined by one common theme, which we will see here in in a moment. But the first scene, Jesus demonstrates compassion for the unclean. The second scene, he demonstrates compassion for the undeserving. But look at the third one. In the third scene, Matthew highlights Jesus' compassion for the unable. Well, let's read verses 14 through 17 to see what this is all about. And Matthew tells us here, the gospel writer, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Again, to understand this scene properly, we must look at the parallel accounts found in other gospels. So write down this reference if you don't have them in your notes already. Luke 4, verses 38 through 40, and Mark 1, verses 29 through 34. These two other gospel writers provide one more detail, and that's how we see all of these three stories connected by one theme. And the tale is this. Jesus went to Peter's house in response to a request. Luke and Mark tells us that. Therefore, that's how Matthew unites these three scenes by a common feature, and the feature is Jesus is responding to people's request to be healed. And therefore, church, that's why we say the compassion of Christ is all over the pages of the Gospel of Matthew, particularly the the first three miracles here. The compassion of Christ, the sympathy of Christ, not only his sovereignty over sickness, but his sympathy and his compassion and his sensitivity to the sick. Now, as we just read here, Christ performed many more miracles on that particular evening. But Matthew decides to place emphasis on this one here. And there is a reason for that again, church. And I want you to see the common theme. He is reaching out to another outcast in that society. Not because she was Peter's mother-in-law. Mother-in-laws are good. I love mine. That's not the reason she was an outcast. 
The reason she was an outcast in that society is she was a sick woman. And anyone suffering with such a severe fever at the time was considered defiled. Now, we don't know what the illness was. Fever is a symptom. All we know is that she couldn't even speak. She was so sick with fever. She couldn't even get up. Somebody had to do that for her. And the author here, Matthew, informs the original audience that Jesus, again, touched her. Breaking all the social protocols, breaking all the social norms. Why? Because he loved the sick woman so much that in response to people's request to come and heal her, he said, of course I will. And then he went and touched her. He demonstrates how much he cares for the unable. This woman could not even speak. This woman could not even ask Jesus for his help. Now again, Matthew specifically demonstrates with this that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, is exempt from defilement. You see, because he can touch anyone and not get infected because he is God. He is sinless. The effects of sin have no impact on Jesus Christ because he is the sinless son of God. But look at verse 16. I want to point out to you something very important. Actually, no, I I meant to say verse 15, the end of verse 15. She got up and waited on him. As soon as she got better, as soon as she was healed by Christ, she got up and waited on him, which means that she joined the disciples in bringing people to Christ. Do you see that, church? The end of verse 15 says that she got up and waited on him. And in verse 16 says, when evening came, they brought to him many people who were demon-possessed and so forth. Well, who are the they that brought people to Jesus Christ? Presumably the people who were in that house along with that woman. Because she immediately got up and started to wait on him, started to serve him. So she started serving her Savior immediately and bringing people to Christ right away. And we know that she did that immediately because Luke, in in chapter 4, verse 38, tells us that she did that immediately. She didn't wait. She immediately started bringing people to Christ. So in terms of applications, let me offer you two thoughts. First of all, this woman represents our prior condition before we came to Christ. We were completely unable to even come to Christ on our own, apart from divine intervention. And like her, sinners lie on their spiritual deathbeds in desperate need of the saving touch from the majestic Savior. And that is a perfect picture of who we were before Jesus came and saved us. Completely unable to even speak, spiritually speaking, because we were spiritually dead, the Bible says. Now secondly, this woman here also represents the faithful believer who immediately starts serving Jesus Christ after conversion. And we know several people like that. They want to waste no time in serving the Lord. They don't wait around sitting and soaking and sour in churches. They immediately start serving Christ out of gratitude. And for this reason, I ask you, my friend, have you been serving him out of gratitude for so great a salvation? Or are you just going about your own business after receiving spiritual life from Jesus Christ? He saved you for a purpose. What have you been doing? Have you been bringing people to Christ after he saved you? Because that's the example we find in this woman here, Peter's mother-in-law. She got up immediately and started serving and immediately embraced the agenda of Christ, the plan of Christ for the world. And that plan is to save sinners. Now, obviously, he doesn't need us to accomplish his purpose, just like he didn't need her to do any of his purposes. He could have done that without her or anyone else. But he gives us the honor to wait on him, just like he gave her the honor to serve him. And as we serve him, our job is to promote his plan of salvation. Our job is to promote his plan for the world, not our plan for the world, but whatever he wants for the world. 
And if you need a reminder of that program, church, here it is. You can serve him by leading others to Christ. Exactly what this woman is doing here. If you're not sure what to do, if after you became a believer, you're unsure how to serve the Lord, how about you follow the Great Commission? It says, make disciples of every nation. By going, by baptizing them, by teaching them. And you can start by telling others about Jesus Christ. Again, you don't need a theology degree in order to do that. All you need to do is say, let me tell you about the one who changed my life. And tell the whole world, let me introduce you to the majestic Savior, the one who's sovereign over sickness, sensitive to the sick, and sympathetic towards the sinner. Come, let me introduce you to Him. In church, if you haven't noticed by now, I find no greater joy than to lead people to Christ. I can't help it. That's the thing. Scripture says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just like you can't stop bragging about the people you love, you shouldn't stop talking about your Savior. If you really love Him, if you are really thankful for Him uh, bringing you salvation, that's what should be in your heart. And what's in your heart comes out of your mouth. Jesus Christ loves sinners so much that He is willing to come close and provide the saving touch. And friend, if this doesn't impress you, if this doesn't move you to compassion, to go tell others that Jesus Christ has died for them, I don't know what will. Our invitation to you is today and will be, for as long as I'm here, come to Jesus Christ and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son Jesus Christ to save us. And the fact that we are undeserving of your grace, Lord, and we are undeserving of heaven. And yet you sent your son to die for us. And we have just learned more about him, about his characteristics and his compassion. That's what we saw here in this text, the compassionate Savior, the sympathetic high priest. But Matthew focuses on the King of Kings, the majestic Savior who is compassionate enough to break all the norms and touch people and save them in response to their request. So thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that this will be the case here at Grace Baptist Church, Lord, that that message will never depart our lips. Lord, but not only that, that we will live that truth in our lives, Lord, because our desire is to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.